Welcome to the Isle Podcast. I'm John Froze, a former state representative and state senator in the state of Michigan. And I'm David Rutledge, also a former representative in Michigan. Together, we've seen firsthand how the aisle separates one side from the other. The aisle can, in many instances, though, bring us together. Today, we will explore just how the aisle has influenced our leaders and public servants, Republicans and Democrats, elected and appointed. So join us in the aisle, where together we can deepen our understanding of the things that separate us and explore just how we can work together for the common good. Hey, David, it's great to be back in the Isle podcast with you again. Uh, I'm excited today that we get to be together to, to welcome somebody really special, uh, the 112th Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, Curtis T. Wilder. He's going to join us in just a few moments, but I'll tell you what, as, as you have known Justice Wilder, um, you've also known him as a, an appeals court judge. You've known him as a trial judge for 27 years, uh, a good family man, uh, and really get this one one of only five jurists ever in the history of Michigan to serve at all three levels, both at the trial court, the appeals court level, and of course, at the Michigan Supreme Court level. Today in private practice, he'll give us a little background on some of the work that he's doing. But I'll tell you what, David, I'm excited to have uh, Justice Wilder with us. What do you think? Uh, John, you just said, I, you, I could not put, have put it better. Uh, you have captured this man in such a, an amazing way. He's one of my heroes. Um, it, it, he has been at every level. You have to think about that. Every level of uh, ju- the judiciary. And he's only one of, one of five, as you mentioned, in the history of this state to have been there. So I'm as excited as you are. And well, let's I'm welcome hoping- him in if we would. Yeah, and I'm hoping that um, that our our listeners and viewers are excited as well uh, to hear this uh, this jurist. That's great to have him here, Justice Wilder. Welcome to the Isle Podcast, Senator Representative. But John and Dave, yes, yes. <laughs> absolutely, my, my friends. It's wonderful to be here with you. And, and thank I, I want to remind I want to remind uh, John Prose that. You you are a product of uh, our the area that I used to represent, uh, you know, part of Washtenaw County, uh, and you still live in Western Wayne County. Uh, so it, it's just wonderful to have you as part of this uh, experience. Curtis, how did he do as your representative? Did you did you have to take him to task at all? He was excellent. Yay! <laughs> and well, and the main thing that. was he, he was accessible. Yeah. Uh, a great listener, a great advocate. Uh, this is what you want uh, from your state leadership. And Absolutely. you were the same, John. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. So it's great to have you here. You know kind of our purpose, um, Curtis. Our purpose is to to dive a little deeper into some of the the things that make Curtis Wilder tick. And and I'll tell you, I've had the opportunity to get to know you on a personal level. And boy, start there. How in the world did you find yourself as being one of only five to have served in all three capacities like that in the state of Michigan? I have to say, uh, you always think that it's luck or that it's hard work. But I, uh, as you know, I'm a man of faith. And I think that so much of this was uh, ordained in my path. I was in high school 
uh, 11th grader, uh, very shy, very reserved, uh, actually refused to give a speech in my 11th grade English class, even at uh, penalty of being failed from the class and ended up with my high school counselor who uh, encouraged me to go to a program called Buckeye Boy State. Um, Boy State is an American Legion program in government and citizenship. And the, the government part was something that I wasn't that familiar with. Uh, Ohio had the, heart, uh, the largest program in the country at the time, 1,400 boys from across the state of Ohio. And we were told at the opening assembly, you are now going to run for office or you're gonna help somebody run for office. And I chose to run for county prosecutor. Love the experience of campaigning, love the experience of being elected, and then doing the job of prosecutor and taking my first case to the Buckeye Supreme Court, where I had a conviction reversed. And I asked the justices why I lost my case, because I thought I had proven the case. And they agreed that I had. They said, you prove your case. We just wanted to give the other side a break. <laughs> And I realized, boy, judges have a lot of authority and power to play favorites or to do the right thing, to follow the law. This really interests me. This is what I want to do. So I knew from the 11th grade that I was going to be involved in law, that someday I wanted to be a judge. And now I've had the opportunity uh, by virtue of just hard work and being in the right place at the right time of having governors who appointed me to the trial court, the Court of Appeals, and then the Supreme Court. And I believe that I've fulfilled my mission at those courts of being accessible, being uh, concerned about the rule of law, being a good listener, and, and using all the skills that I've developed uh, throughout my years uh, as a jurist, but also as the son of Nathaniel and Dr. Sarah Wilder, who had a big influence on my life, uh, just to, uh, uh, to be that kind of person who could listen and then make the decisions that really were in my heart, the right decisions to make. Judge Curtis Wilder, you, while you have sat on the bench for all these many years, now you are arguing before the bench. Uh, and, and I'd like to understand how, how that is from the other side. And, and I'd like to set it in a frame of the uh, uh, case that I think you have, you have recently won. Uh, you argued before the Supreme Court, did you not, just recently, on a case that involved redistricting and, um, and the Open Meetings Act. Uh, and I think you successfully argued that case on behalf of uh, some newspapers in Southeast Michigan. Can, can you kind of take walk us through that and your approach uh, as you were trying to get at the rule of law? Thank you for asking about that. That was actually the first time in my entire career that I had argued at the Michigan Supreme Court. Wow. <laughs> wow. I became a judge at age 32. So many of the cases that I had argued at the Michigan Court of Appeals that could have gone to the Supreme Court went there after I left private practice and went on the bench. So going to the Supreme Court,
to argue on the behalf of the press that what was happening with our new independent citizen redistricting commission should happen in the light of day, available for the public to see, and all of the memos that had been written available for the public to read was absolutely a thrill. And to do so with five of the seven justices having been my colleagues was also a thrill. And, you know, knowing them as people, as friends, as colleagues, and as jurists is somewhat of an advantage because I understand how they approach cases. I've been in conference with them. Uh, but importantly, I took the approach on behalf of the, the newspapers, really for the entire state of Michigan, that what the Constitution said should be applied uh, according to way, the way it was written. Uh, the whole purpose behind this constitutional amendment was to have more public access to the process. And that was the overriding theme. And to be able to convey that and use all the skills that I've developed as a jurist, understanding what it's like to not have your question answered, <laughs> and making sure that I didn't put myself in the position where I was asked a question and didn't answer it. <laughs> uh, that that is, it was a thrill to be able to, uh, to, to pursue that and, uh, and to do so before people that I, that I knew and respect and like. So did you have to convince a particular justice? Did you, did you know going in because of your experience that you just had to make the case for one justice to tip the scales in favor of your clients in this case? I had a feeling that this could be a closely contested case. And what's always important is to listen closely to the questions that you're getting, which gives you some signal of, of where the bench is at. And try to make sure that you're giving the answers that you're being asked. and. You, you really have to let the chips fall where they may. You're not going to persuade somebody by not giving them a straight answer. So the facts are what they are. The law is what it is. You have your position. Uh, you, you really have to argue persuasively as to why the interpretation that you're bringing makes the most sense for the state of the law going forward. And because this is the first time the Constitution was being interpreted, uh, I understood that it was going to be a very uh, hotly contested issue. So I, I made sure that I had as much background as I could have so that there was no question that would stump me. And I, I didn't at least leave the justices uh, with unanswered questions. And I'd like to follow on with... Um with this line of, of, of questioning, because I'm wondering whether or not there are different skill sets that it may be necessary at different uh, judicial le levels in, in, in terms of arguing cases. Can, can, can you speak to that, uh, Judge Wilder? I can. At the trial court, especially if you're dealing with a jury trial, it's really important to 
to have the kind of personality that can relate to people. Uh, because uh, jurors, as much as we, we think they try to uh, decide based on the facts and as the law given to them by, uh, by the, the court, they're really looking for uh, who's credible. And they have to make those credibility decisions. So does a trial judge. If it's uh, an argument of fact and law, the trial court has to make the determinations about who's giving it to me straight. Who can I really trust here? And jurors have to make that decision about trust. So I always tell people, you can't be who you're not. You have to be your authentic self, convey your authentic self to the fact finder. And once they have been convinced that you're giving it to them straight, if you have the better part of the argument, you're going to persuade them. But those skills are different. They're not as useful at the appellate court. In the intermediate appellate court, that is an error-correcting court. So the fact finder has already made their judgment about credibility. And the lower court judge has already made his or her determination about the law. The intermediate appellate court has to defer, unless it's just clearly obvious a mistake was made, to whatever the fact finder has decided. They don't have to defer on the law, and they're looking to correct errors, and they're looking to correct substantial errors that would be inconsistent with justice. So the appellate court on the intermediate level has a more narrow focus in, in their review of what happened below. Then when you go to the Supreme Court, it's not about error correcting at all. That's done at the intermediate level. and if they didn't find errors that needed to be corrected, uh, the case is probably going to end there. What the Supreme Court is concerned about is something jurisprudentially significant that impacts the fabric of a law for the entire state, the development of the law, an extension of prior precedent that needs to be decided by our highest court because they're involved new facts, new circumstances, that hadn't been considered, a new statute that's passed that's never been interpreted. So now there is new law to be made. These are the kinds of things that the Supreme Court would concern itself with. So it's, it's um, and those are the things they should be concerned with. Uh, you, you let the error correcting uh, and the fact finding happen at the lower level closer to the people. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Well, that's excellent. Do you think about um, the number of cases that have been that have been tried at all three levels of the judiciary uh, and your role in the judicial system? Which one stands out? Which is the one that that really stands out in your mind as ultimately precedential or ultimately uh, the one that that continues to just rattle in your head, Justice? Which one is the one that you say? That was something else. I was a part of history. So there's one case that uh, I think about a lot. I was on the trial court. There's really no published authority on this. And 
you have a lot of jurisdictions that have struggled with this uh, with this question. Uh, David might remember this one, uh, the case of Blair Shelton, who was an African-American gentleman who, during the Ann Arbor serial rapist investigation, was constantly getting stopped by the police because they had just a very generic description of a black male. Uh, and he kept getting stopped, and then the Ann Arbor police said, well, we're going to take people's DNA. Uh, we'll take a blood sample. We'll run your DNA. And if you're cleared as a suspect, we'll give you a letter that says that. So if you get stopped again, uh, the police will know that you've been cleared. So Blair Shelton volunteered to have the blood test. He got his DNA sample. He was cleared in the investigation. Then they actually arrested uh, the criminal who was committing all these heinous offenses. And Blair said, I'd like my DNA back. And he was told, well, you can't get it back. You're now a statistic. And he felt that that was wrong. He felt that that was an invasion of his privacy, that such critical information about him would be kept in the system. So he sued. And I made the decision uh, that there was no basis for the, the Ann Arbor police or the state police that was working in concert to hold on to that DNA or those records. And I ordered them returned. And if you do some research on that, that is still a question that privacy <clears throat> advocates are concerned about today. There has no, been no real good answer to how to how to deal with that. So I have, feel like have I other a, courts opined on this? And has really this reached the U.S. Supreme Court too? There really haven't been many courts that have opined on that. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it has been dealt with through legislation, uh, but some of the legislation says... Once you've given up your DNA, that's it. You don't get it back. And I haven't seen any cases that have tested that, uh, that have gotten to the higher court levels where uh, some appellate court has ruled, yes, that's appropriate or no, it's not. Wow. That's a fascinating a, situation. It is. I, 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 Judge, I'd like to throw some numbers at you now. Yes. And, and 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 get your take on on this. And, and I want you to know, I do this in the frame that I, I wonder about this myself. I saw a, a poll that was done by uh, the univer university out of Connecticut, um, uh, Winnipeg University, did a poll back in November of 2021. And they discovered that that poll indicated that Six out of 10 people believe that the judiciary is influenced by, uh, by politics. And uh, I, I mean, this is, I mean, this goes pretty dog, pretty deep. Uh, and uh, I can even, the poll even broke it down based on party affiliation, independence. Uh, and I, 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 those numbers indicate Republicans, across the board, Democrats, independents across the board, all of them, more than a majority in each of them, believe that, that the judiciary all the way to the Supreme Court is influenced in some way by, by politics. Your take on that? I think it's unfortunate 
I've been in the rooms where decisions have been made. And I am consistently saying that it's not politics that determines the judicial outcome. It's judicial philosophy. Uh, mm -hmm. There are different philosophies for how to approach the art of judging. It's not a science. We're people. Uh, we have different uh, legal training. We have different personal experiences, life experiences, backgrounds. We bring all that to bear in our decision-making process. And there is one camp which I happen to be in that believes that the rule of law involves a very strict interpretation of what the, the meaning of a statute or court rule or constitutional provision would be. And that starts with the words. And there are usually dictionary definitions and sometimes there are definitions that are based on the commonality of the particular industry involved. But we start with the words. And we, uh, Justice Scalia famously called it a dead constitution. <laughs> you know, the, the, the constitution was written and the meaning at the time it was written is the meaning 50 years later. The words haven't changed, therefore the meaning hasn't changed. There are others that believe that the law evolves so that the meaning of the words can evolve based on uh, present circumstances that couldn't have been anticipated when, uh, when the statute or constitutional provision was written. And that's because they try to look at what was the intent, the overall intent. And so the words are only part of deciding what the intent was, the circumstances surrounding the passage. And so I, I can see why political parties favor one position or another in terms of judicial philosophy, and they get involved in supporting one set of judges or another. But that doesn't make the judges political. That mm -hmm. just means that the political system has gotten more involved in selecting the kind of judges that they want. And I always believe that people believe judges are political because they don't have the kind of understanding of the background of what judging is to, you know, to believe that the judges really are coming at this uh, in a, with sincerely held beliefs, honestly and consistently. And I think that's true. You don't find judges who switch back and forth their philosophies depending on the case in front of them. Well, Judge, a, a follow-up. Should political parties select the people running for a judicial seat, like the Supreme Court, should they be involved in the selection process for those people to get onto the ballot? I, I believe our Constitution has it about right. There should be some citizen participation in selecting the judges who have such large control over the way that we live our lives. And 
it's unfortunate that there's a, a large drop off of people who actually vote in those elections. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that the system is wrong. I think that's entirely appropriate for the public to have a say in who the jurists are, just as much as they have a right to say who the governor is, uh, who the state legislator is, or the state senator, who their mayor or city council person is. Okay. Uh, because we're representative of democracy, yep. and that includes the judiciary. Yep. Well, I'll tell you, Justice, the, the the depth of knowledge and the depth of experience that you've had all the way along um, has given us a chance to learn a little bit more about it today. But the thing that I found really interesting was it's not just your work in law. It's not just your work in the Supreme Court or on the appellate court or in the in the courtrooms that you were elected to serve in. Um, you tend to spend an awful lot of time on the not-for-profit side of the world too. And it looks like there's a significant influence of the arts. There must be something that has drawn you to, to serving as the chair of the board of trustees at Interlochen. There must be something that says that you want to be the secretary of the board of directors for the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, just to name a few. Yeah. What, what, what has drawn you personally to that side of your life outside of the law? I was introduced to the arts when I was eight, year old, eight years old uh, by playing the piano. And to me, something about the arts is transcendent. A powerful symphony or a jazz performance or opera, uh, hip hop for some people, whatever it might be, there's something that gets into your soul and provides satisfaction, enjoyment, peace. And these are things that I believe are just as important as what we do uh, in, our, in our daily work lives. Uh, also, faith. Uh, I sing in my church choir. Mm -hmm. And there's something about being part of that ministry that not only brings me closer to God, but helps me know that I'm, by my act of singing, I'm reaching someone else who may need uplifting. And, and so I've seen my daughter, who is a professional violist, transformed by her playing the viola. I've seen my son, who plays the double bass. Well, he's a mechanic, but playing double bass for eight years helped keep him grounded, uh, something that he really enjoyed and still enjoys to this day. I've seen the transformational power of the arts, both in Orchestra Hall in Detroit and at Interlochen. These young people who come to campus, maybe somewhat distraught, maybe not sure who they are, and leave there with this confidence that they can make a difference in the world. In fact, I had a, a, a friend of mine reach out and tell me about his daughter's experience at Interlochen last summer where she was very much struggling with the pandemic and being away from her friends. And she goes up to Interlochen and comes back really exuding the power within her and the, the talent within her in a way that she couldn't before because she was with students who helped her bring that out of herself. So I, I think there's something about the power of the arts 
to transform that keeps me involved in wanting to give back by helping to make these uh, these um, uh, institutions sustainable and available to as many people as possible. I, I, Justice Wilder, I, it has been just such a pleasure to have you with us in the aisle. And the, one of the reasons it has is because it, um, people who join us in the aisle always you know, leave us with something to wonder about, ponder, but they always enlighten us. Um, and that's why we, why John and I just love doing this so much. I, I'd like to give a, John may have a, a closeout question, but my closeout question is this. John and I have both been on the side of, of authoring laws uh, that, that jurists like yourself have had to interpret. Um, if you had um, the legislators uh, at the state level, both you know, the House and the Senate, in a room together, and you were conducting a seminar on how to do their job better, what would be your advice? Knowing that at some point, the laws they create are going to, are going to be interpreted. I would uh, advise, say more of what you really think. Because when we're looking at those words on the page, we're really trying to apply the law the way you intended it. But it's not always clear. And sometimes that's not evident until after you come into a circumstance that nobody anticipated. But I would just simply urge to think about all the different possibilities, not just the circumstance that leads you to consider the act in the first place, and try to give more guidance to the future courts who will have to interpret. The more that you say about the situation uh, by putting that in the, in the legislation, the easier it is for the court to really understand what you intended and to uh, reach that intended outcome. Thank you so very much. That's you excellent. Know. Justice Wilder, it has been a pleasure to have you join us today in the aisle. We look forward to having you come back in the future uh, to enlighten us and perhaps even play a play a few a few chords of <laughs> of some classical music that will get us in the right mood. In fact, maybe we need some good music for both intro and outro that can come straight from Justice Wilder and, and his, uh, his fantastic skills. Thank you, Justice Wilder, for joining us in the aisle today. Thank, Thank you very you. much for having me. I appreciate Thank you so very much. Thank you for joining us today for the aisle podcast. If you like today's discussion, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the aisle podcast on Facebook, YouTube, or anywhere you get your podcast. You can also find us at theislepodcast.com. So step into the aisle and make a difference in your life, just like our guest today. And we'll see you in the aisle.